The following Knowledge at Wharton podcast is brought to you by Wharton Executive Education. For more information on Wharton's executive course, Advanced Management Program, please visit executiveeducation.wharton.upenn.edu. Among the U.S. auto industry's many challenges are the ongoing negotiations between General Motors and the United Automobile Workers Union, aimed at coming up with a new contract to replace the one that expired on Saturday. A major sticking point seems to be GM's plan to turn over health care expenses to the UAW by way of a trust that would cover GM's unfunded health care obligations to employees, retirees, and their families. Among other issues roiling the industry include last month's takeover of Chrysler by private equity firm Cerberus Capital Management and a possible slowdown in consumer spending as a result of fallout from the subprime mortgage crisis. We have asked Wharton Management Professor John Paul McDuffie, co-director of the International Motor Vehicle Program, to talk about these and other issues. John Paul, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. I'm going to ask some questions about the U.S. auto industry, uh, specifically the negotiations over the health care benefits and their creation of this trust. How would it work, and why would the union agree to this? Ah, those are those are very good questions, and there are negotiators uh, laboring away in windowless rooms right now uh, in the Detroit area trying to solve them. Uh, this is probably the most striking feature of of what I think are correctly labeled uh, historic uh, negotiations this year between the UAW and and the Big Three, and uh, GM was picked as as the first target. Actually, probably the healthiest uh, financially at the moment, uh, which is not not uh, not to say uh, that that uh, makes them all that healthy. The um, the trust is something that has been uh, done once before on a kind of experimental basis in the auto industry, or actually both at uh, at GM and Ford, and it uh, puts uh, funds into the trust, which can be used for healthcare liabilities. Uh, the trust then managed by the union. Um, after the GM and Ford experience, this has been used twice with uh, supplier companies, so both uh, Goodyear and then more recently Dana uh, negotiated these, uh, I suppose VIBA is the right way to, to uh, pronounce the, uh, the acronym. Uh, so there's beginning to be a little bit of experience with them, but the scale of what would be involved to do this for GM is, is on orders of magnitude that make it very difficult to predict exactly what would happen. Billions, uh, f- like $50 billion, $55 yes, billion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the big issues is uh, how much money gets put into the fund up front and where does that money come from. Uh, the companies would like to put in as little as possible uh, at the beginning and hope that the funds they put in will earn, uh, will accrue at a rate that will cover the eventual liabilities. People will be you know, retiring over time. These costs are not incurred all at the beginning. The union would like that amount to be as, as high as possible. Uh, if we look at the, the, the precedent, uh, both the Goodyear and the Dana settlements were funded at about uh, 70 to 71 percent of the uh, calculated healthcare liabilities. In the run-up to these negotiations, uh, analysts were saying GM would probably shoot for uh, 50 percent, wanting to fund at a level of 50 percent, that the UAW would be uh, thinking of something more like 90 percent. 
So already that reveals a, a big gap. Uh, those percentages applied to very big numbers. The next issue is where does the money come from? Is it put in as cash or is it put in as stock? Uh, if a lot of it's based on stock, then the future uh, amount in the fund depends on the future stock performance. So that's a kind of bet by both sides on uh, exactly what the future performance of, of, of the company will be. Just from some of the press coverage I've seen, I understand that there are uh, talk of some contingencies that would deal with unexpected future events affecting the total amount in the fund. Um, I guess one possibility uh, that this contingency would cover is, well, what if the fund generates huge surpluses? What if the U.S. implements a national health care and suddenly a lot of those costs are taken off of uh, the, the, the back of the fund? Uh, so there would be a provision to handle that, um, probably more importantly for getting the union support, also some provision if the, if the funds run out. Um, I didn't mention that part of the experience with the uh, small experiments at GM and Ford is that the funds ran out much sooner than expected. So the union has that in their very short-term uh, memory as a risk. There's a pretty big gap between the 50% figure that GM wants to fund it with and the 90% that the union wants GM to fund it with. Where do you think they'll end up? Uh, it's, it's hard to predict because I think it will, be, uh, it will be combined and interacted with many other features of, of the deal. Um, but uh, I think that the union will be aware of the political risks of the union leadership for them in bringing forward a proposal that looks like it's giving away or uh, these hard-won health benefits or putting them highly at risk. After all, the leadership can only uh, put together a contract, but it has to be voted on by the membership. Uh, the health care concessions that the UAW made to both uh, GM and Ford in the last couple of years uh, were approved by a very narrow margin. Um, in fact, at Ford, uh, narrow enough, I think, to uh, to make everybody very, very nervous. So if they put together a deal that, that uh, doesn't get ratified, then it's uh, much more politically complicated to put a new package together. So what's your prognosis of uh, where, how the deal will work out this time overall? Well, my sense is that both sides are ready to uh, try to do something very different here. I mean, they, they could end up, of course, in a, something that's more of a continuation of past patterns, but it wouldn't really deal with, with this healthcare problem. Um, so my guess is that there's a, a lot of uh, energy going into trying to find a, a creative uh, solution to this. Uh, that will probably um, push up the level higher than GM originally wanted, um, but it will probably be less than the union wanted because of some of these uh, contingency plans, which may reassure some of their concerns. Um, you know, with the Goodyear and Dana benchmarks of around 70, 71 percent, it's a little, given that the the, uh, the automaker workers have thought of themselves as kind of the uh, aristocracy, really, of the of the blue collar, for them to take a deal that was not as good as the uh, the Goodyear and Dana workers would be tough. So I think... I wouldn't expect it to be uh, below that level. If we can switch gears and talk about Chrysler for a moment. Um, sure. A few weeks ago, they, there were reports about them hiring away James Press, the head of Toyota's North American operations. And, of course, they had their new CEO, Robert Nardelli. Uh, what do you think the outlook is for Chrysler in the coming year? 
Well, this is another, uh, in a sense, completely uh, new terrain. There's never been uh, an automaker owned by a, a private equity firm, and uh, perhaps no private equity firm owning such a large and uh, sort of iconic uh, uh, company. So uh, there's a lot of, of things to watch. The the owners, uh, the new owners did state very clearly that they intended to invest and rebuild Chrysler. They were not interested in uh, what many often assume is the basic private equity motivation of to, 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 to turn and, and flip the assets quickly uh, and to sale. This was quite important to getting the head of the UAW saying that he would support the deal. And in putting together what some consider a kind of dream team of uh, automotive uh, and executive talent to run Chrysler, it sort of seems to back that up. Um, Now, Nardelli's reputation uh, from uh, GE, but even more from Home Depot, is certainly as a cost cutter more than anything else. uh, So that uh, perhaps brings uh, some uh, anxieties on what his preferred and natural approach will be. Many people, and I would agree, uh, have thought that Chrysler's problems are more on the revenue side than on the cost side, and uh, they've got to get their uh, their product mix right and uh, and begin to attract consumers on that basis. Uh, Jim Press, on the other hand, has a, a absolutely stellar record of building Toyota sales in North America and uh, is a proven uh, revenue booster. You know, Toyota's had uh, had people uh, poached from them uh, during the years that they've been so successful in the U.S. before. Never an executive at anything like the level of Jim Press. And, of course, Jim had recently been uh, appointed as a member of Toyota's board of directors, the first uh, non-Japanese in that position. So, um, I mean, I think if I think of examples where other uh, people have have left Toyota with the intention of applying Toyota's methods uh, in another company, uh, it turns out that there's an awful lot in the the broader organizational uh, culture and organizational systems that make it possible for that person to execute so well. So Jim will be stepping away from all of that at Toyota and into a, a different situation. Uh, on the other hand, sales has always been more customized to the market, um, and uh, Toyota sales organization in the U.S. has very successfully, I think, argued with uh, Japan about the best way to sell cars in the U.S., um, so, so these are not really uh, the, the things that, uh, that he'll bring in terms of, of insights into selling cars in the U.S. are, are certainly applicable. Uh, but it's a question of whether the people and the systems uh, and the culture behind it will uh, will work. I think my my sense is um, Jim Press was approaching uh, probably the the last few years of his career at Toyota, where they quite strictly do uh, ask people to uh, retire at at a certain age, and um, the this Chrysler opportunity was a challenge, uh, probably greater than any he would have been offered at Toyota. A couple of questions about Nardelli. First, I wonder if you have any first impressions of how he is doing. And secondly, you know, uh, at Home Depot, he faced certain interesting challenges uh, in dealing with shareholders, which are particularly relevant because Home Depot is a public company. Now, in in an environment that is controlled by a private equity uh, entity, I wonder whether you feel his leadership style will be a positive or a negative in this new context. 
Well, he won't have to deal with shareholders, so that's the most <laughs> uh, the, the, the first <laughs> obvious plus. Although uh, people talk about this being a, a kind of redemptive opportunity for him, he he might look for opportunities to redeem himself on on that front as well. Um, you know, I I think uh, running an auto company is a, a big and complicated job. Even if you come from within the industry, he obviously comes from outside. Uh, Alan Mulally at Ford, the new CEO who came in from Boeing, has, I think, shown quickly that he's uh, determined to have a, a clear and simple strategy to uh, remove various obstacles to that, to stay focused on a few central challenges, and then to uh, work closely with the people who, who really know the business. So to see Nardelli putting together a strong team, Nardelli and the other um, people at Cerberus, is I think a good sign. Uh, how Nardelli then manages that team, I think, is 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 the real key. Um, it's certainly true that there were many reassurances at the time that the sale was announced that the uh, the cost saving plan, which uh, Dr. Zetcha from Daimler Chrysler had announced, was as far as they were going to go with cost cutting. Uh, but I did see recently uh, that Mr. Nardelli said in light of the subprime crisis, in light of the credit crunch, in light of the impact on car sales, uh, there might need to be a reexamination of that. So that that's, seems uh, true to form and uh, would, again, perhaps stir up some anxieties that he'll reach for the cost-cutting lever uh, first. Uh- with all the fallout from the subprime mortgage crisis and, and hints of, of less consumer spending, lower consumer confidence, what's the outlook for the auto industry in terms of just selling cars? Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's always uh, sensitive to, uh, to interest rates and, and always has been. Um, cars are longer, uh, have a longer life uh, than they ever have. So often upgrading a, a vehicle or getting a new vehicle at the end of a lease is uh, more of an optional than an absolutely necessary um, activity. So I think it is, uh, in that sense, an, an eminently postponable um, thing for people. And, and the U.S. has a very thriving used car market, um, which uh, um, is, is where people often turn if they uh, are, feeling, are feeling pinched. You know, the other, I think, variable is uh, also gas prices and the product mix, particularly of the of the big three automakers. So, um, you know, products that are relatively expensive and not very fuel efficient are going to be even more vulnerable. Uh, but anyone, anyone who truly uh, needs a car and wants some of the newly fuel efficient offerings that are relatively new in the market probably has to go to the new market or, or, or perhaps to a part of the used car market. Um, so I, I don't expect a, a, a deep, deep drop, but uh, these are conditions that will make it harder for GM, Ford and Chrysler precisely at a time when they could have used a boost. I wonder if you could now turn to some questions about India. Tata Motors, uh, India's largest car maker, has been in the news for the past few weeks uh, because of reports that it's interested in taking over Jaguar and Land Rover, uh, two marquee brands that the Ford Motor Company has put up for sale. So let's start with a couple of key questions there. Does it make economic sense? And what could Tata Motors do for these iconic brands that Ford could not do? 
I think there there are probably several uh, interested buyers uh, of Jaguar and Land Rover that may may share certain certain attributes. I think for a company in a developing country that's looking to uh, put itself on the map in this industry, particularly uh, Tata would not be a, a, a new entrant, but certainly in 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 passenger cars and in uh, certainly this high end luxury segment, they would be uh, very new. Um, you know, to uh, instantly put you on on the map, and uh, as a former British colony, there might be a certain sense of pride in uh, in becoming, uh, you know, acquiring the jewel in the crown, so to speak. <laughs> um, often, you know, w- one of the advantages you might imagine, which is India as a low cost manufacturing base, um, is not, I think, very much a factor here. Uh, I suspect uh, that as a condition of the sale uh, that there would be Ford would insist that the buyer not move uh, manufacturing outside of the UK at least not right away. Um, a lot of political sensitivities in the UK about that uh, with respect to to the auto industry. Now Tata has admirable cost reduction skills as they've shown in the development of of some of their other um, both the Indica which is a small car and uh, there's a lot of uh, of uh, Great, I'd say, excitement and impatient interest in the uh, so-called two thousand dollar or the one lock car, which Tata has been promising for some time. And you know, people who've looked at this closely think Tata has a lot of the skills to really do that. So, a company that that is quite savvy about cost control can can probably apply those uh, even to a luxury uh, car segment. Um, and you know, Ford has been investing in Jaguar and Land Rover. Land Rover actually sells at a at a pretty good margin. Jaguar uh, is is uh, more, I think, uh, financially troubled. Uh, but you know, Ford is selling uh, not so much because these brands are in the worst trouble they've ever been in, but simply because Ford's overall crisis and and Malali's desire for focus is uh, pushing them towards just concentrating on the core business. So, you know, Tata could or any new buyer. Um, uh, pick up these firms presumably at a pretty good price and at a point that they're already on the upswing towards being uh, in in better shape and that might make it easier to you know look triumphantly like you've managed them uh, beautifully. Uh, news reports suggest that while India's car market is smaller than China's, it's growing at twenty percent a year, which is faster than the Chinese market. What factors are driving this growth, and, and what are the implications for global auto companies? Uh, you know, for for some time, the the fact that the China uh, market growth rate was so much higher than India was attracting some attention for similar reasons. People expected that the opportunities were were pretty pretty large in both. Um, uh, you know, I think that perhaps the main factor is uh, we're talking about uh, uh, you know economic dynamics affecting the per capita in- income of people uh, where there's quite a lot of price elasticity. So if uh, if the price uh, of vehicles comes down a rather small amount, there's a very large number of people who suddenly can't imagine purchasing a car or particularly with some rising uh, income levels of their own. So, um, so uh, in a way, it's it's kind of where that uh, the competition, which causes the prices to drop, and the other economic trends that are raising the incomes, can suddenly bring a large number of people over 
what what's sometimes called the motorization threshold, um, the point at which people suddenly are are feel able to to buy a vehicle. So I think that's probably the main thing. Um, of course, the uh, outside investor interest in India has uh, has grown. In recent years, uh, people rushed first into China and then a little more slowly into India. Um, but uh, India then looked less crowded competitively, so that brought a, a sort of a second a second rush. Um, perhaps the main uh, sense of constraint, and this I think has affected some of the the, the investment, is that the infrastructure in India is uh, is really not adequate to take on a lot of new vehicles. Um, China. I would say governmentally at different levels has recognized that for a long time and have been pouring huge amounts of money into new highways and other other infrastructure. India has not. Um, so, uh, you know, we could, we could have years of terrible, even worse congestion in India before uh, that gets solved. But um, my guess is uh, it might break some political logjams on the infrastructure side if the market growth continues. I'm sure anybody who has driven in Bangalore would agree with you 100%. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Looking at the, the, the big Japanese uh, automakers, Toyota, Honda, and Suzuki, all of them have been expanding capacity in India in the past for the past few years. Uh, could you comment on the strategies that these companies are adopting in India? And, and do you think they ought to be focusing more on the domestic Indian market? which I believe right now is at about a million cars sold a year, but which is projected to grow by 2012 to about 3 million cars. Uh, should they focus on the domestic market or should they use India as a base to export cars to other markets? Uh, well, there's a slightly different story about uh, each of the companies you mentioned, and, and you left out one that I, I think uh, should be included, which is Hyundai, uh, the Korean company. So uh, Suzuki uh, has uh, by now a pretty long history in India, having come in as a partner in uh, in Maruti, which uh, was uh, half owned by by the Indian government, and uh, partly because of that government investment and some other favorable regulations, uh, Maruti at one time had I think a staggering eighty percent of the market at the very small car end. And really represented the first uh, sort of modern automotive technology to come into India in some time. I mean, this is back now 20, 20 plus years. Um, so uh, the government has actually, uh, I think, just in May of this year, completed uh, the selling of all of its ownership of Maruti. Um, Suzuki uh, now has a controlling share. Uh, 54%. Um, Suzuki has poured a lot of new investment into the Maruti plants and into expanding the Maruti product line. So, and something that is uh, perhaps a, a, a historical legacy, uh, India, some of the, the classic uh, automotive models like the Ambassador uh, often had very long lives because uh, it wasn't easy to replace them. And uh, every place in the country, you could get them repaired. And there was a huge amount of both expertise and spare parts and the like. Uh, Maruti is starting to benefit from the same thing. You could, if you've got a Maruti, you can get it repaired anywhere and you could keep it on the road for a long time. So, so Suzuki is going to be trying to take advantage of all of that head start lead that they have. Um, Toyota came in uh, much more recently and decided initially not to come in at the very low end of the market, but at a slightly higher end 
and uh, and my sense is that they they slightly misgaged uh, whether how much demand there would be at that level. Um, the product didn't sell as well as they expected, although they have gotten some valuable experience there. So they, like just about everybody, are trying to find just the right low-cost car to bring into India to catch some of this uh, swelling demand. Um, I think the other uh, Japanese companies like like uh, Nissan are, are, are in not terribly different situations. Honda is uh, generally uh, comes into every country with motorcycles first, and, and so uh, that's uh, perhaps where more of their their India investment has been, but they're also aiming to grow. Uh, Hyundai is the real, uh, the real surprise. Uh, they came in a relatively small number of years ago. Uh, they built a plant that was almost an exact duplicate of a plant in Korea, uh, including lots of automation, which you wouldn't expect, uh, making the Sonata, which is a fairly you know, mid-sized uh, upscale car, but also then bringing in um, some small cars. Uh, managed to bring the price point down enough uh, that they've had really spectacular growth, and they've done some savvy things with their their marketing to uh, align their products with some iconic uh, Indian uh, images and people. Um, so, in a way, they're the biggest success story of all of the newcomers in the Indian market, and they're going to be uh, tough competitors. Uh, last month, uh, Toyota's chairman Fujio Cho was in New Delhi. Uh, and he said that in the next couple of years, Toyota is planning to launch a new small car. And they considered a lot of different countries, but he did say that uh, India might well be the first country where they launch it. Now, given everything that you just said about Suzuki and the popularity of the Maruti in India, uh, do you think that uh, Toyota will be really able to take on Suzuki in the Indian market? And if so, what should its strategy be? Well, Toyota is a very, uh, a very able uh, competitor, as as we all know, and uh, I think overtaking Suzuki and and let's say Hyundai as the most other successful newcomer um, probably depends on uh, first of all getting getting the product right. Um, you know, Toyota had rather slow sales in Europe for quite a number of years, in which. They mostly took models that were world models, sold also in, in Japan. Um, when they finally focused design effort and uh, actually set up a design studio in Europe and produced a small car just for the European market, they suddenly started to take hold. Um, now they were doing lots of other things at the same time. Uh, I would assume that uh, if if they have India in mind as the first place that they're uh, you know that their design efforts are very much focused on consumer acceptance, and 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 uh, that will be necessary from a, a styling and feature point of view. Um, but probably price point will be the most important. So everybody is trying to innovate in every possible way um, to get the price point low enough. Some of that is involves reuse of components from other vehicles. Some of it involves judicious decision about where you can cut back uh, on, you know, lighter weight steel, uh, you know, paint jobs that aren't based on dealing with road salt, uh, you know, in the Northeast U.S. Uh, so it's the creativity to get the right mix of those kinds of cost-cutting moves. I expect Toyota will be very good at that. 
a lot of other companies will be will be trying. So the right product at the right price point, then I think the Toyota advantages of a strong brand will will kick in very strongly. Now again, this the the Maruti has almost perhaps a bit of a of a, a, a national favorite. Um, uh, although uh, uh, people know, of course, that Suzuki is behind Maruti, probably Tata, as Tata becomes stronger, will be even more the, the, the national pride purchase for an Indian consumer. The Hyundai example, again, suggests uh, right product, right price, smart marketing, and, and moving quickly is the key. Uh, perhaps the I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'll just say that Toyota is often uh, a bit cautious and careful, and if uh, speed does end up mattering, uh, that may uh, slow them down. But they have a tremendous track record for, uh, you know, steady improvement, learning from their mistakes uh, better than almost anybody. Uh, so I think if if we look out five to ten years, we can expect Toyota to be strong in India. I'd just like to end with a question about China. There's been news reports about a car price war in China that's eating into the profits of companies like GM, VW, Hyundai, as well as China's own auto manufacturers. This is obviously good for consumers. What are the implications for the companies? And could this type of price war occur in other countries, or is China unique? Oh, I I think uh, it's a fairly familiar pattern of a kind of a gold rush mentality in which a a very rapidly growing and promising market, uh, uh, first of all, provides uh, phenomenal returns to some of the first movers who get in and, and start to establish a dominant position. Often that advantage uh, does lag for a while, even when other newcomers come in, um, but everybody's benefiting. And at a certain point, uh, even with rapidly growing market, it's, it's suddenly a crowded marketplace. And then the price competition starts to erode things. And sometimes the those who've made the, the, the least commitment um, will actually back out of, of markets. This was a story in Brazil, for example, in the mid-90s, uh, when there was also a lot of turbulence in government regulation and tax policy, which heavily affected those, uh, those trends. I mean, con, you know, cons- the, the consumer credit picture in China has, uh, has, has jumped around a bit, and that's affected um, demand. But I think for the most part, it's, it's, uh, it's exactly this overcrowding. Um, nobody's going to leave. China is too big and important. Uh, everybody is going to want to um, hold on to a piece of that market rather than concede it to the Chinese domestic companies that are coming on strong. And I think everybody believes that uh, there are things to learn from the pursuit of these low-cost cars that can apply to a lot of the rest of their business. So both in China and India, their incentives to kind of stay in, in that game. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me if in a few years the same phenomenon is showing up in India for a similar reason. Thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upen.edu. Thank you.